Hello, I'm Mark Price and welcome to my podcast, Meet the Business Author. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that businesses and individuals work, particularly how being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can transform an organisation. I'm building a platform at Engaging.Works with the world's biggest business library, where anyone can come and search for information and guidance on their working life. In this series, I'll be speaking with a number of prominent business authors whose books are available to buy on the business library. I'll be speaking to them about their book, what lessons we can take from them, and what they think about the future of working life and business. Hello, I'm delighted, in fact thrilled today to be speaking to Paul Matthews. Uh, Paul uh, is the founder and CEO of People Alchemy. Uh, he's a specialist in learning and development. Uh, he coaches, he talks to boards, and he has written three successful business books, all about learning and development and how to be the best you can possibly be. And we'll explore those books with Paul and the lessons that people can learn from them. But Paul, I'd just like to start by asking, uh, you were born in New Zealand, you were raised on a farm, you became an engineer. How on earth did you become a successful business author? It's like all life journeys, it was never planned. I would have to say there was no way, even 10 years ago, I could imagine sitting here with you talking about this kind of stuff with three books and things like that. Um, I, I got into all sorts of things other than engineering as well. I ended up as an expedition leader with an overland travel company. So I've sort of crossed the Sahara eight times and all sorts of things like that, which is kind of, again, a little unusual. Um, and I got into learning and development almost by accident and ended up doing some training, quite enjoyed it. And that's kind of started 20 years ago in that. But what I saw when I was there at the time was that this wasn't working as well as perhaps it could or should. So what were you doing? What was your job when you thought, oh, I don't think training's done as well as it could be? At that point, I was director of customer services globally for a NASDAQ-quoted multinational you know, IT company. So I was kind of at board level globally and doing stuff. Um, and so I was a customer of learning and development at that point. And I would send people off to get trained, as one did back then, and I would, they'd come back and not a lot would happen or shift in terms of their ability to do their job more effectively. Um, and as an engineer, I had to look at that and say, there's something wrong here, that if I was building machinery with that level of failure rate, I'd probably be killing people. So what's failing? What's not working in L&D? And that kind of started the process. So, and then in 1999, um, I moved on from that company and uh, and start my own company and, so, and what, so tell me ago. tell me what the epiphany was what what was it that suddenly made you one day say this isn't working um, well I don't think it was an epiphany I, I'd be nice to say there was a blinding flash of light and I fell on the floor and you know um, my forehead smoldering but uh, no there wasn't it was just a general realization and when I did get involved with training myself personally after I left that company and, and as I said by accident got into that I was still doing it the way that it was done back then and still not getting results. And I said, hang on, this isn't right. 
you know, but it wasn't, um, no, there was no epiphany per se. Um, so it's been a, a realisation over time. I a guess. lot of people these days have a, a side hustle. They have their real job and then something that they think they'd really like to do. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that they angst most about, quite, quite understandably, is losing that security of a big company and starting on their own. So how how was that for you? Because that sounds like a really big thing to do. There you are, uh, big quoted company, global role, and you decide that you're going to start your own business looking at L&D, which is, as you said, something that you hadn't done. You just thought mm. wasn't working well. Um, I think at that stage I hadn't planned to get into L&D. What I did get into um, because of the role I had had is I actually worked as a consultant helping people procure IT systems as opposed to trying to sell them IT systems. So it was a kind of, you know, gamekeeper tame, uh, turn poacher type of role. Um, but I also got involved with coaching uh, because of the studies and other things I've done out of pure personal interest in psychology, um, NLP, uh, hypnosis, and a whole lot of other things, which was absolutely fascinating. And, and that led me into coaching um, at a senior level because of my background experience. And, and then I started to join dots and get to talk to a lot more people in the people development arena. And that's generated a lot of interest and say, actually, I want to play here. This is a, this is a place that has some leverage. And what I mean by that is if you can help, say, a manager improve their effectiveness by one or two percent, that has ripples because the people are managing go home and take that better management um, zeitgeist back home with them. If they're having a better time at work, they'll have a better time at home. There's a, there's a big leverage uh, lever available to L&D, which I think most L&D people don't realise they have. So I talk about the unknown superpowers of L&D in effect um, and their ability to affect the world in a way which most of them have no idea that they've got these superpowers. So yeah. if you started to have those thoughts 20 years ago, and you said that your early work now you look back on, you think, oh, it wasn't as effective as it could have been. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, share with the listeners. So what have you learned about learning development over 20 years that has taken you from what you might describe as the sort of old way of doing things mm -hmm. into the more modern approach that you have today? I think the biggest is to think about your ultimate purpose in learning and development is what are we doing it for in the first place? And pretty much all learning initiatives or, or development initiatives in organization are to seek behavioral change in the people. Even if they're saying we're just training for, to tick compliance boxes, ultimately they've got to be thinking about those people behaving compliantly as well. Um, and what was happening is people were focusing in L&D on the learning, the memorized stuff, knowledge particularly, but also to some extent practice skills, but taking at that time, 20 years ago, almost no notice at all of the behaviours that might ensue from those knowledge and skills. And I started to think we need to turn that on its head. We need to be thinking about what behaviour outcomes are we looking for. And then in order to, for those behaviours to happen, we might need to think about some knowledge and skills to support people while they're doing those new behaviours. Um, so it kind of turned the whole design process and thinking up on its head and started to align uh, in my mind anyway, what learning and development should be doing with what the business wanted to do in terms of strategy execution. Because ultimately it's about executing the strategy as set by the board to fulfill the vision and so on. So L&D is about making sure there are people who are suitably uh, capable at the point of work in the moment they're asked to do a task, to do it and execute the strategy. 
If they can do that, actually, that's absolutely fine. There's actually, at that point, no need for further learning and development. It's only when they cannot, for some reason, execute that strategy effectively now or potentially in the future when it changes that you have to think about development. Um, so it's, it's, it was just turning it on its head, basically. So it's, a, it's just a mindset thing more than anything else. And then in a practical sense, if you were going into a board today as opposed to 20 years ago, how would you structure your conversation now um, I think I'd, most boards don't really know how to utilise the tool in their toolkit called Learning and Development Department. Um, so that's one of the conversations to have. Um, also, most senior board members or any senior managers still think of learning and development as that training thing that happens and see it as a service delivery arm of the business and they just go and place an order and it happens. Um, and I think they need to get aware of the fact there's a lot more going on in L&D than... In other words, just because they've been on a training course doesn't mean they know what's happening behind the curtain. And, 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 and I think they're aware of that now with marketing and a lot of other areas of the business, but a lot of senior people still think they know enough about L&D to just kind of dictate what's going to get delivered and when and why. So they need to start sort of uh, getting out of the way of L&D but also L&D needs to step up to that challenge and start thinking business stuff rather than learning stuff. So the whole job title of L&D is possibly the wrong title in a sense if people get hung up on what that means at a semantic level. What would you call it if you could change it? Um, I don't really care what the name is. It's more the brand it has within the business. In other words, what promise is it providing to the business? Mm -hmm. um, so that could be the performance department, it could be capability, it could be learning and performance, it could be any number of different things. Um, but it needs to focus on performance as an output rather than learning as an input. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the difference. And then they need to be thinking about, well, how do we measure the outputs we're seeking to achieve behaviorally? And then how do we mash them together with KPIs out of the business to say, we sought those behaviours, we ran a programme, we got the behaviours we sought, and as a result, we've seen an uplift in the KPIs mm. uh, at a business level. And I, I've always been struck, Paul, by the amount of money that an organisation will spend on customer research and customer data, but how comparatively little it spends on its employees in terms of uh, understanding how they feel. And I can't help but feel that L&D sort of fits into that mould. The marketing department gets a lot of money to spend on, you know, promoting the goods. But then the money that's invested in the people who are producing that product or those services um, doesn't seem to be as carefully spent, as thoughtfully spent, or even um, uh, needs to be as, an effect, as effective. Would would your views tally with that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There, I mean, there's the old adage that the way your people will treat your customers is going to be aligned with the way that the company treats the people. Um, and and what I, I talked to one guy who was head of L&D from a bank, and he, he kept saying, as a bank, we provide some amazing online abilities to our client base. Why on earth, when we have that technological capability, can't we provide... A similar le different stuff but a similar level of technical um, stuff to our own employees it just doesn't make sense and that was one of his kind of uh, pet bugbears so there's certainly uh, there's certainly a number of senior people out there in the L&D infrastructure and, and sector who are uh, 
doing great things, talking the great talk, but it's still not cascading as readily as I think it should into the general kind of L&D professional who's delivering a lot of that stuff. And if you were to take marketing and uh, think of it in terms of marks out of 10 for um, uh, aligning itself with strategy and delivering and take L&D and give a similar measure, how, how would you score the two? I think marketing is held far more accountable for the, the, the pounds, the money it's spending, um, much more so than L&D. Um, and I think L&D should be held more accountable and that actually scares the pants off most people in L&D because they get this regular budget and actually not much, there's not much oversight or governance about what the organisation is getting in return for that budget. I was talking to a council uh, just yesterday actually and they told me about their spend and they said one of the things is we have no idea we just think we're supposed to or should spend this amount as a percentage, whatever. But actually, we've got no evidence it's making really much difference at all. Mm. It probably is. And anecdotally, we have some evidence, but no, there's no, no measures in place. Um, and it's not about L&D proving that it needs a seat at the table or anything like that. I often hear that. We must prove that we are providing value to the organisation. And I think that becomes then a very self-serving way to try to use data. Uh, what they need to be doing, I think, is looking how can we improve what we're doing in pursuit of executing the strategy, in mm. pursuit of the vision, mm. and keep improving what they're doing. That will then get them invited to the table rather than trying to say, we are, we are owed a seat at the table because our figures show X. Mm. And, and I think there's a misconception about how L&D needs to be using data as well at the moment. But it's great to see data on the agenda more than it has been uh, over previous years. And, and as an introduction to your three books, if uh, an HR director or a, an L&D uh, manager professional is listening to this podcast, where would you suggest they start in terms of measuring performance or the, the response to um, L&D investment? I think the measurement stuff comes as part of the process rather than as something you do standalone. So they need to be looking at the entire process, which starts early on saying, okay, we need to be looking at performance. We need to be looking at the kind of competencies and capabilities that people need in order to execute the strategy. And competence and capability are two different things. You can have a perfectly competent person who goes into a post and then is rendered incapable by what's surrounding them in terms of their environment. So if you put an actor on stage, a brilliant actor, but turn the electrics off, they're not going to be able to deliver a performance. They're perfectly competent, but in the moment, incapable uh, because of their uh, context. So you have to start looking at that whole diagnostics process to say, if people are not performing in the way that we want, and in other words, they are turning up and proving to be incapable at the point of work, we have to diagnose that system, that performance system, and treat it like a system so that we can figure out what's really going wrong, what are the barriers to them performing, is it really a lack of knowledge and skills on their behalf or is it something else? And the research I've done and other commentators in the field say it's 70 to 80% something else. It's not the individual. So by and large, what happens if someone's not performing, we throw training at them as a remedial measure and 80% of the time that's not going to work, basically. So that's where a lot of the waste occurs. So that diagnostics process up front, performance consultancy is one term used for it, uh, needs to happen first. Then if out of that you do end up with a need for training, a demonstrated need for knowledge and skills improvement, 
and perhaps some other tweaks around the training and provide. Sometimes it's a morale booster and so on. Um, then you can take them into some kind of learning initiatives, which may or may not be classroom because that's not the optimum place to do a lot of learning anyway. Um, and it is the optimum place to do some learning. So this is when you uh, transit from performance consultancy into what I call learning consultancy, which is deciding we've now proven that there's a learning need. How do we deliver that need? How do we deliver whatever we're going to do to get them to the point where they can deliver at the point of work? In other words, they can be capable at the point of work um, uh, because their competence is being brought to that point. Um, and then obviously if you put them into any kind of learning initiative formally, you then have to wrap around that some learning transfer initiatives to say, how do we make sure that whatever we deliver to them formally, whether that's a classroom, e-learning, coaching, action learning sets, whatever it is, does get then promoted and operationalized into the workflow as they go forward. Because without that operation, operation, operational sort of uh, input, the training was kind of didn't make any sense. It, it, it's not going to produce any results if the behaviour doesn't change down the track. And it's the, not that it's got to just change now, it's got to change sustainably over time. So it's got to be embedded and become habit in the way we do things around here. So now we're talking about habit change and all of those things. So you've got to look at that whole end-to-end -end process and obviously along the way you're going to be wanting in-stream and input measures and ultimately, at the end of it, some measures to put in place to say, ah, that program was a success and we have finished it. Um, That's great. Or That's it failed, you know, and we need to go back and rejig it to try it again. That's a great description and the, a brilliant introduction to your three books. So would you like just to talk us through each book, uh, the message of the book, and uh, what people who buy and read it should draw from it? Okay, the three books. Well, the, the first one, um, uh, I've actually got copies in front of me, which you, you can't see, obviously, on a podcast. And I also say they're that really cool-looking books, by the way. They are cool-looking, <laughs> and you can buy all of these books uh, in the Engaging Works Business Library. And if you are a premium customer, you will get a 20% discount uh, in addition. So there's so the sales great value. <laughs> um, the, the first, perhaps, the, there are three in the trilogy. I didn't write them in this order, but the first one to think about is the one called Capability at Work, which is around the performance diagnostics process I just mentioned earlier. This is about making sure that you've understood um, what's really going wrong. You know, when there's trouble at mill, what's really happening? Um, is it really a training issue or is it something else? Um, and this sort of stuff you need to be teaching to managers. So they need to be able to do their own diagnostics. So there's some diagnostics tools and processes in there to take people through that. And then if they do put people in a training room out of that, uh, because it's been proven there's a need, then what happens in the training will be appear to be very relevant to the people in the room. So they're gonna pay attention to it. And hopefully that's the first step on the transfer journey. Um, the, the first book I wrote was actually the one on informal learning. Um, and that's really focusing on the learning that people do in the workflow kind of as a side effect of life almost is one way I describe it. So it's the stuff that's happening all the time. And the vast majority of what people learn and know in order to do their job, they learn in the job, on, in the workflow, not formally. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of L&D people kind of don't pay attention to that. And I think they need to because that's where most learning is happening. If informal learning, if the engine in the basement, the informal learning engine was able to be stopped, thankfully it cannot be, if you could go and turn that engine off, any organisation would be on its knees in weeks, certainly in months. 
it would be dead because it wouldn't be able to adapt and change and learn as their environment changed around them. Um, so informal learning is a lifeblood of an organisation and usually when you do uh, risk assessments of maybe a big redundancy program or something, the big thing that comes up is, oh, it's the knowledge walking out the door. And if it's a big company, you tell them, well, you can train that knowledge. Well, actually, no, we can't because they got it through experience. And so then, so people do, at a, at a senior level, know about informal learning, but they call it experience. So when you're talking to business people, don't use this jargon stuff called informal learning, use the word experience, and then they'll start getting what's really at stake. Um, and the reason that, that I see that in the middle is in order for people to transfer what they do in a, in, a, in a formal training setting into the workflow, they've got to start doing things in the workflow. And as they do it, they will start learning informally as a result of applying and experimenting. So in understanding the informal learning process um, is actually an important part of understanding how to then go about doing learning transfer. And are there any things that you believe um accelerate that on-the-job learning experience? Um, yes. And in the third book on learning transfer, there's 166 tips in the back of what those reasons are. Um, I, I started writing the manuscript and it just got huge. And I realized I had this vast amount of material and all of these tips, practical things to do. And I thought, well, if I join them all together in a kind of a narrative, it's just going to explode the book into like a thousand pages. I said, well, hey, I haven't got time for that, and actually it'll be hard to read. So I just took all these tips and just ran them into the back of the book as little pieces. Um, and also got some other people who are out there doing it in the field, well or not, to contribute. So there's another 20-odd contributors into the book with just little vignettes of their experience, some stuff they've done, and so on. And that's kind of almost crowdsourcing some of it. So that's really interesting as well. And to give a little taste to listeners... What two or three things would you say they could do to improve uh, on-the-job training experience? Um, well, I, what I don't get too fussed about or, or set in the book about on-the-job, about, about the training itself. But the transfer of It is the transfer. It's the stuff outside of the classroom. Um, and the thing I would do is look at the work from Dr. Ina Weinbauer-Heidel, who's based out of Austria. I've worked with her for a few years We've spoken on the stage together at conferences. We've got another conference we're speaking together at in, uh, in May this year in London. Um, and, uh, but she's, she did her PhD on learning transfer and went through all of the research. And believe it or not, it goes back over 110 years, which is staggering. I never knew it was that old an academic discipline. But also because of that vast body of research, there are so many determinants of learning transfer that got put out there. And that's perhaps one reason a lot of that hasn't seeped its way into the practical world of L&D, is it's just almost too complicated. So she went through it and distilled it down to 12 levers of learning transfer. And they're on page 70 in my book with her permission, and she's written a book on those as well. Um, so um, that would be the one thing I'd do, is have a look at those 12 levers and say, how do we pull all of those levers? Some of them people will already be pulling, but unless you're doing something about all 12, you're leaving money on the table, as it were. Great. So uh, three books. Uh, you've explained the rationale behind all of them. Uh, readily available in the business library with a whacking <coughs> discount. Uh, and I hope that people, having heard your explanation, but also not only the principle, but the practical, the very practical advice you give, 
uh, are are now tempted to go and uh, purchase and read more. Um, to to end, Paul, a, a couple of things. Do you feel that your work has a bearing on productivity in the UK? I'd like to ask you. I'd like to ask you if you feel that some countries are better at this than others. Um, is there something culturally that makes some individuals and countries better uh, at adapting the um, the things that you've talked about? And then lastly, I just want to ask you about business books you might have read that have influenced your thinking. So um, if we think about the UK first and the state of productivity, how important is improving on this dimension to improving UK productivity? I think this is sort of talking about um, just developing people in general um, in the, the UK work infrastructure. And clearly the world is changing rapidly. Um, there's AI coming, there's all sorts of things coming down the pipe that are going to change a lot of jobs. There are jobs that exist now that didn't a few years ago. Um, it's staggering when you see these lists of new jobs and think, well, I didn't even, I didn't even know that existed to date. Um, and um, there, there was one I saw the other day, which is rather amusing, it was a lactation consultant. And, and this was actually a lady who goes into organisations to help them set up their their, their environment appropriately for mothers who are breastfeeding and who are taking their babies to work on and off or in, in, at, at times. So it's not just technical advances, there are social advances which are also making changes to these jobs. So th there is a huge amount of development needed in terms of people upskilling and reskilling in order to get what they are. So yes, I think that's important. Uh, as and, part of the productivity thing. And I don't know if you found this, but all of our research on engaging works in the surveys we've done has shown there are two groups which are uh, or feel as though they're not being fully developed. One is, in a, in a very broad sense, the under-30s who are just going into work and want to learn more and for whatever reason don't feel they're being developed as quickly as they should be. And the other is um, men uh, in their 40s, mid-40s, who feel that the world of work is moving away from them and they're not being retrained and reskilled? Would would you have a view on which groups at the moment feel uh, most and least developed and trained? Um, I'm interested in what you've just said, and and no, I don't particularly have that. I think it's more a personal mindset thing and also an organisational cultural uh, mindset thing. In other words, how mature is the learning? landscape or ecosystem within the company they're working within. If it's a mature learning landscape, they will be encouraged to self-develop. Their managers will be helping them do that. There will be a whole raft of things available to them and they will be able to develop should they choose to do so. If they're in a more traditional company where the learning ecosystem is not as advanced, it's more traditional and it's still kind of, you go to a training course and that's about it. Um, then people still expect to be spoon-fed their learning and they'll sit back and wait until it happens to them. And of course, in that circumstance, they may well say, well, I'm not getting enough development. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of them saying, I want more development and going and finding it either from the company or change jobs or outside the company, which they can certainly do. There's so much stuff online now. So. And it's certainly true that nobody cares more about your career development than you do. So um, taking some responsibility yourself yeah. is um, always a good first step. And, and giving it an international dimension, I mean, it, and, and obviously uh, coming from New Zealand, do you have any views about whether learning development is more advanced in some countries or some cultures are more embracing of learning and development? 
That's absolutely the case. I've spoken at conferences and things all around the world and in different regions such as the Middle East, Australasia um, and so on. The um, Australasia's uh, advanced, the UK is relatively advanced in terms of where it's got to. Uh, uh, Australasia's keeping pace. The US in some ways is slightly more performance oriented, but only at the front leading edge of what's happening in the US. Um, what I find in the Gulf states, for example, there is a more command and control management style and that tends to drop back to a training with a requirement for a qualification at the end. So different companies have that. Around Europe, it varies. Um, I'm in Germany three times this year on different bookings I've already got at conferences. Um, I was in Poland recently speaking at a conference on learning and development there. So I'm getting this different flavor and you'll always find the interested people are there and they tend to be the ones at the conferences, but often that's the top of the iceberg and what's under the water is in many cases very traditional, even in this country. Okay, thank you. And um, my last question, what business books have you read that have most influenced your thinking? I, I read a lot. Um, I was very grateful to uh, Dr. Ina Weinberg Heidel, who I mentioned earlier, for her book. Um, uh, currently, I'm reading uh, um, books by Kahneman and Thaler on, on nudge theory and, and behavioral economics. I'm actually speaking on that topic in, in May uh, at the conference in London. Uh, I think it's the 15th of May from memory. I think that's a Friday. Anyway, it's, an, it's a public conference here in London. Um, so that's a field I'm starting to look at in how can we nudge behavior change because so much of learning is about behavior change. Um, and there's lots of other books that I've, I've read. I, I, I've got an amazingly big bookshelf. I must, I must get rid of but some if, of them. If you but, picked yeah. out one, if you, if you were to say, I would advise that people read this book as well as my three, what would it be? Um, from a learning and development perspective, I think Ina's book on learning transfer would be one of the, the key things that is very practical. Um, another book that I would put into that bracket of practical and really useful to L&D is Carol Dweck's book on mindset, the, um, the philosophy of success. I can't remember the, anyway, the title is Mindset. It's by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K, who's a professor at Stanford, and it's about growth or fixed mindset. And that's another critical part of managing and understanding for learning and development. That's great. Paul, thank you very much indeed for your time, uh, for your insights, uh, and for sharing through your three books all that you have learnt in your world of work, and particularly over the last 20 years. Uh, I would recommend, again, the three books. Uh, if you go online and see Paul's People Alchemy. Paul, uh, thank you, and we wish you every success. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. For more in this series, please go to engaging.works where you can buy the book and browse over 80,000 other business titles. See you again next time.